word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, the play's the thing. And there's a new artistic director of the Arizona Theater Company. What are the things that make theater specific as an art form that you can't get from your phone and you can't get from your TV? Plus, we'll talk to stage director David Hemphill and Sunita Agent, one of the co-stars of the Black Theater Troops production of Single Black Female, now playing in Phoenix. I identify as a single black female, but I like telling those types of stories, you know, that are real, that are going to touch so many different people. But first, according to statistics recently released, over 25,000 people moved to Phoenix over the last year. And as Arizona Story Fest returns to the Valley this Saturday, June 1st at the Mesa Convention Center from 10 to 4 p.m., many may not have experienced the event. Nancy Dudenhafer and Rich Ripley with the KJZZ development team joined me, and I began by asking what led to the creation of StoryFest. We have a show on our air every Saturday. It's called The Moth, and it's storytelling. And it's become a very popular venue for people to come and listen. And actually, The Moth has a local program once a month that sells out all the time. So our thinking was that we put together a storytelling event that would be available to folks during the middle of the day. And we have some great partners, right, Rich? That is correct. The Arizona Storytelling Project, part of the Arizona Republic. We also have the South Mountain Community College Storytelling Institute. And we're working with the Virginia G. Piper ASU Creative Writing Center. And then AAA Arizona. Why were they interested in getting involved in this? Because it's not, you know, all the time that a corporate sponsor necessarily cares about storytelling. I find that fascinating. Well, there's another part to our event. So we not only have storytelling, but we also have an opportunity for a variety of different organizations to come and and that people can, as they walk towards the storytelling area, they have the opportunity to visit with folks from, for instance, all sorts of ideas that you might use for summer trips that we have. Arizona State Parks and Trails, we have the city of Prescott, we have Wickenburg, Winslow, places that people may or may not have been to. Especially you were talking about how many people have moved here in the last year. So if they want to learn about how to explore Arizona, they want to come to our Story Fest. Yeah, that's the beauty of this state is that so many different localities have very unique stories. I mean, we have a series that we do uh, now twice uh, in two years called Untold Arizona, and it's mm-hmm. amazing the feedback that we get, even from people that have lived here for a long time. You know, <laughs> I never knew about, you know, what happened in this particular city. Uh, Sholo, for instance, I didn't know how it got the name. There's a slew of featured presenters, and I was kind of curious the criteria for how they were chosen to participate. Basically, the Storytelling Institute of South Mountain Community College has been teaching storytelling for many, many years, and they have a tremendous list of people who are, you might say, trained storytellers. And so they invite them to be part of this event, 
and they pick out what they think will be some of the most interesting storytellers. What makes our event a little unique is that we have 12 storytellers. So we have an afternoon of storytelling. These are a diverse group of storytelling. One group will be telling friends and family. Another group will be telling adventure stories. Uh, A group will be telling food stories. The last group will be telling home stories. Some people might be familiar with one of our storytellers. It's Arizona Republic's movie critic, Bill Goody Kuntz. He's been writing for the Republic for years and years and years, sometimes kind of controversially. <laughs> <laughs> so he should bring out a few folks that would like sure. to. It's a very intimate setting. And so after these people tell their stories, often there's time, there's a break, and you can go up and have a chat with them about what they talked about on the story, or if you have other questions for Bill, I'm sure he'd entertain them. Sure. (laughs) These stories are truthful, correct? Yes. They're first-person personal stories. They're actual stories that these people have uh, a lot of emotion and feeling about. And I think that's what they bring out to the public, how strong and emotional. And, and, And I've seen this where the audience sometimes is to tears at their so mm-hmm. involved. It's, or they're in laughs. It's a great environment for those who love storytelling. Another example for NPR listeners would be StoryCorps. StoryCorps made right. its way around our country and invited people to come inside and record a story with a family member. And sometimes some of the most touching uh, moments were recalled and, or revealed. You know, things that perhaps this mom and son had never talked about before were revealed on a StoryCorps story. So those are the kinds of things that these people will share. They're, they're really opening up their hearts and their lives and letting everyone else take a peek in. And what you end up finding out is that humanity has a commonality. And that's one of the wonderful things about this event is that no matter your age, no matter your family status, whether you have children, whether you're single, whether you're older, younger, you're going to find something at this event that will appeal to all because we have, besides the storytellers stage, we have a children's area. Well, that's a very good point because I know folks would be wondering if they haven't attended before, you know, hey, this is on a Saturday, you know, normally I'm with my kids and we're doing things. And so it's a family friendly event that you can bring the kids to and not just have them listen to stories, but participate with uh, the various authors and, and mm-hmm. do games and activities, I would mm-hmm. assume, right? Yes, we have basically, you might say, four different areas that they're going to get involved in when they come to the event. Obviously, uh, we've talked a lot about our main stage storytellers, and that's a very big focus of the event. We also have 80 authors who will be exhibiting at the event. And and these are local Arizona authors, and they're selling their books. Uh, So it's an opportunity for people to come down and meet an author, get a book signed by the author. Which makes a great gift. Exactly. And we have a variety of different genres. Um, Of course, children, as we talked about, is very popular. We have 22 children's authors. That's outstanding. Science fiction and fantasy is very big with many people in the community. We have 14 uh, of those authors. And then we also have two different areas where people can... This is, and these are areas where uh, the general public can come in and observe for free is we have an author stage, which authors will read their books up on stage for 10 minutes. Very interesting for a lot of people. And then we have a kids area and a kids stage, a children's stage. And on that children's stage, we have 14 children's storytellers and five authors who will read to the children. So those are activities for the whole family, and it's a, a Amazing 
that they can do all these things for free. Right. And it's at the Mesa Convention Center, so there's free parking outside and plenty of it. So it's air-conditioned, free entry, and free parking. There is, however, a $10 ticket to see the storytellers. They have spent a lot of time preparing their stories, and so we do have a fee for that. But there's a reason for that. Right. It benefits a program that I know people who've lived in the Phoenix metro region know about, which is Sun Sounds. But again, you know, um, dovetailing off that news peg that we talked about uh, with 25,000 people who've moved to Phoenix over the last year. Give us a quick snapshot of the importance of Sun Sounds to the community and what what it does and who it reaches. Sun Sounds is available for people who, due to a disability, cannot read print. So it may be someone with a visual disability. It could be someone with a Parkinson's type of situation, or it could be other kinds of paralysis. And it takes about two to 400 volunteers a year. We read printed material 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That includes the New York Times, local papers. We also do magazines, books. It's just a wide variety of different printed material that's read. Rich Ripley and Nancy Dudenhafer from the Development Department here at KJZZ. I want to thank you guys so much for coming on and uh, giving us a little preview of what's going to happen for Arizona Story Fest. Thank you. We appreciate it. It was fun. You can find more information at storyfest.kjzz.org. You're listening to Word. Maybe you've lived in the Valley for years, or maybe you just got here. If you're curious about Arizona and have questions, KJZZ wants to know about them. Send us a question at qaz.kjzz.org, and if yours is selected, KJZZ reporters will investigate. It's time to plan your summer road trip. If you have a vehicle that won't be a part of your trip to San Diego or Yellowstone, donate it to KJZZ. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. And thanks. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Arizona Theater Company has undergone significant change in recent years with new leadership and new approaches to drawing a broader audience. The new artistic director, Sean Daniels, has deep Arizona ties and he officially moved back to the area earlier this month. He joined the show's Steve Goldstein recently to talk about his ambitions for the Arizona Theater Company. So, Sean, how much of the credit for your theater career goes to your upbringing in Arizona? So, actually, I fell in love with theater at Arizona Theater Company. My parents were um, subscribers and were donors, which everyone should be, and uh, they began taking me to shows also. And so I saw an R town there, I think I was nine, and it just blew me away in terms of what it is. So it was really that theater that made me fall in love with the art form. I feel so passionately about Arizona Theater Company because it's the reason I decided to go into theater. What are the challenges there beyond financial? We know about the financial challenges. There's a lot of pressure because it's a statewide theater company. Right based in both Tucson and Phoenix. Yeah, you know, I really believe that Arizona Theater Company could be a leading arts organization in this country, if not in the world. And I'm really excited to figure out how this is a place where artists from around the country want to come here. And, you know, I'm not I'm not interested in being a regional theater that kind of waits for New York to dictate what we're going to do in three or four years. I really want to figure out how the work that we do here can travel elsewhere, not just that it comes in. And so, you know, we're we're talking 
and this is, you know, who knows what'll happen with these projects. But like, we even had a phone call this morning with um, the Hollow Notes people about if they want to develop a new musical, could they do that here in Arizona? And then could it go on elsewhere? And we have other playwrights that want to have their work done here and want to come be a part of it. Um, Lauren Gunderson, who is the most produced playwright in the country, and we're doing her Silent Sky, she wants to come write a play and have it premiere at Arizona Theater Company. Why do these people want to work here? Is it you? Uh, I think that it's somewhat me, but I actually think the the two-city model is very attractive to playwrights in terms of being able to work on something. Uh, you know, what playwright, what artist wouldn't want to work on something and then get to work on it again immediately afterwards? The way it normally works is you get your first production, and then if you are lucky, like a year or two later, you get your second production. Uh, so I actually think one of the things that, that maybe people have thought about in the past as a challenge actually is one of the great benefits of this. Are there certain lingering negatives that you still have to deal with? We have to, as a theater, figure out what is the um, competitive advantage that our art form has. What is the things that you can only get from going to the theater? Mm -hmm. You know, like I have a very nice couch and Netflix has put a billion (laughs) dollars worth of programming on it and um, I can do, I can adjust the temperature in my house from my phone. You know, so it's like we have to figure out what are the things that make um, theater specific as an art form that you can't get from your phone and you can't get from your TV. And it's, it's interesting if you think about when you go to see a comedy in the theater, you laugh differently when there's 400 other people around you, right? You laugh differently at that than you do, say, watching something like The Office, which is hilarious, but you may not laugh out loud the entire time. And so figuring out where are these moments of joy, where are these moments of connectivity that I think the more that we get device heavy, we're only going to be hungrier for moments Mm -hmm. that we can come together and actually spend time sitting next to other people. I also think, you know, you'll see a little bit of a shift in programming over the next couple of years. And the programming that we do, I think, will be a bit more nationally exciting. Mm-hmm. And it'll also be the type of thing that I think also brings in people that uh, maybe didn't already consider themselves theater goers or maybe didn't even realize that world-class theater was happening in their town. Well, that takes us to a very interesting path that we, of course, had to get to. How does an organization keep the loyal audience that has been supportive, that has filled the seats and filled the coffers without alienating them Well, you also want to get younger folks who have different backgrounds? That is the million-dollar question. Everybody wants to figure out how to bring in new audiences uh, without alienating the ones that they already have. And we've watched theaters try to do it too quickly, you know, kind of burn the house down, uh, promising that other people will arrive momentarily, and they do or they don't. <laughs> you know, I think we, we have the real luxury of that we do six shows, you know, throughout a season. And so... Um, are all six shows exactly for you? Maybe, maybe not. But what I think people are interested in is uh, a cu- six curated evenings over the course of a year where they perhaps get introduced to things that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. I always like to think of a season as like a great dinner party. Um, like one loud guy is really fun at your dinner party. <laughs> Two loud guys will destroy it, you know? And so, so I think the way we bring new audiences in is that we figure out like this show we're really going to push in terms of like, I think this is a really exciting show for people to, you know, a different uh, uh, people that have been with us before. So American Mariachi that we just closed in Tucson and Phoenix is the best selling play in the theater's history. And that's a great example of like, does that mean that now we're going to do six mariachi plays a year? No, but it was a great opportunity to bring people in that had not been there before and now figure out the steps along the way to invite them back to see other things. And I think 
if you love the art form and you love being a part of it, you want to look around and you want to see a packed house and you want to see people younger than you and you want to see people that don't look like you because that means that your arts institution will exist in 40 years. Sean Daniels is new artistic director of Arizona Theater Company. Sean, great to meet you. Thanks. Great, great to meet you. Thank you. And you can hear more content from KJZZ's The Show by going to theshow.kjzz.org. You're listening to Word. If you like The Moth, you'll love joining Arizona Storytellers Project and South Mountain Storytelling Institute on June 1st for KJZZ StoryFest at the Mesa Convention Center. More information at storyfest.kjzz.org. Do you have a smart speaker? Ask your speaker to play KJZZ and get all the news you need to start the day. Listen at home on your Echo, HomePod, or Google Home. Just say, play KJZZ. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Single Black Female is the title of a play written by Lisa Thompson and performed by members of the Black Theater Troupe in Phoenix. The comedic production runs through June 9th and stars Sunita Agent and Melvina Jones-Leslie in a series of rapid-fire vignettes that explore the lives of two African-American middle-class women in urban America. The play is directed by David Hemphill. Both Sunita and David joined me to talk about the play, but I began our discussion by asking David about the history of the Black Theater Troupe. 2020 will be our 50th anniversary season, and it's a unique company in the sense that it's one of the few African-American arts organizations in the country that has been in continuous operation. Who was the founder and sort of what was the catalyst for the creation of the troupe, for folks who who don't know? Helen K. Mason um, founded the company. And she was a manager in the City of Phoenix Parks and Recreation Department. So at that time, around the country, there was a lot of racial unrest. And, you know, things sometimes get to Phoenix a little late. So the unrest was headed our way. So to stave off that unrest, Helen started um, rap sessions. Not boom, boom, boom rap, but rap sessions where the... uh, neighborhood would sit around and talk about their grievances, all the issues that the other parts of the country were addressing through riots. Helen sat down and got everybody together um, to talk about those things. Out of those things, she said, okay, write a little skit about the subject that we just talked about and um, do a little dance, write a little poem. So that's how the company was born, out of that dream of Helen's. And did she have any experience in the performing arts at all, she, or just no. a love of it? Is, just is a that love what of got the, her interested? Yeah, just wow. a love of that and a love of community. But most important, she noticed that there was no reason for a city as large as Phoenix not to have that important voice, that very, very vibrant voice uh, within the community. That was always Helen's goal. Um, in her job as well as with the company was to um, increase diversity, you know. And so there's been just over the last 50 years of history an amazing amount of productivity out of the Black Theater Troupe. And, you know, fast forward to now, there's a state-of-the-art facility named after Helen that is the the main performance space, correct? That's right, 1333 East Washington. And that um, building, um, we got that building as a result of the 2006 bond election. There were bond awards that year for Phoenix Theater 
Arizona Ballet, Arizona Opera, and Black Theater Troupe. So the building that we're in now, 15,500 square feet, it used to be a document storage company, just a big empty warehouse. Fortunately enough for us, the city of Phoenix citizens designated some of their tax dollars for us. Besides, um, you know, giving us a history lesson, I wanted to talk about the season closer. It's a comedic play called Single Black Female. Uh, we should say there is no connection to the 2007 psychological thriller film that I looked up online. <laughs> right. The same name. <laughs> yes. uh, I didn't realize there was a, a single black uh, female film. But I wondered, Sunita, if you could tell us sort of what the premise of the play is. This play explores the lives of two middle-class women that are in their mid-30s, just about. And they're telling the tale of how they kind of deal with dating, how they deal with being professionals, and having these stereotypes kind of placed on them of what a woman should be, what a married woman kind of looks like. And they tell it through so many different comedic stories. You get to see them in awkward situations, like the gynecologist, all kinds of fun things. Um, But it's them exploring that journey and really finding themselves at the end. When was this play written? 2007. And so how do you think uh, things might have changed for women in, say, the last 12 years, Sunita? I really don't think they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly the same. The only thing that's different, really, from when this play was written to now is some of the references, but the ideas, the concepts... The principles behind everything is still very much the same. And what was it that made you interested in trying out for this and wanting to be in this production in the first place? So I I identify as a single black female, but I like telling those types of stories, you know, that are real, that are going to touch so many different people, not just single women, uh, black women or women in general. Right. Um, Those universal stories. So being able to be a part of this production and to get the word out of how we kind of deal with things and um, being a black woman really seeing how like there's a lot of humor in it and I know that that's how our community kind of heals from things so it's it's very close to to my heart playing a role like this also it is hilarious so um, I wanted to be a part of that too you know one of the things that I found interesting not knowing much about this play nor the playwright was that it's a very small cast only two actresses in this play yep. and do you have any indication why uh, Lisa Thompson the playwright chose not to name the characters I have no idea I think um, I think that that was just part of her desire to keep it, as Sunita said, universal. Uh, I think that that was one of the reasons she didn't give them names. They have very specific occupations Mm -hmm. and vocations and very specific lives, very specific personalities and et cetera, but they don't have any names. Sunita, what vocation is the person that you play involved in? She is a very powerful corporate attorney. And throughout the play itself, what types of situations does she take us through uh, involved not only in that world, but also her personal life? Well, we see her in her home. It's set in uh, the attorney's home. And we see her talking about how she's interacted with other women, right, when she goes out, how she's interacted with men. Uh, There's some online dating in there and really kind of charting those uh, situations. And like I mentioned before, the, the gynecologist, we get real close and personal with this one. Um, so you get to see her in a lot of different things. She doesn't focus too much on her profession. It's mentioned once where she talks about people having preconceived notions about who she is just because of, you know, her appearance. 
or being the only one of six. Yeah, the only black that? woman in four out of a, a, a company of 432 people. There's only six black women. And that's an amazing commentary on the state of America these mm-hmm. days. Um, I wonder how that affected your acting and the, the places that that took you to. Well, it's definitely an opportunity to internalize those moments and to kind of do a little bit of self-reflection and ask myself, have I ever been in a situation like that? Have I ever felt like I was outnumbered, you know, in a corporate setting? And the answer is yes. I think most black women that are in any like professional realm, lawyers, anyone working in the tech industry, especially as I do, it's very much canon. It's known that there's not going to be a lot of black women that you see there. So again, it was very close to to who I am and it did allow me to digest like I know this feeling I've felt it before so let me get this out to the audience well the other thing that I wonder as well uh, I hear this a lot from folks is it's not just the fact that it's underrepresented it's the fact that you also have to seemingly work harder and be the best at everything that you have to do and I wonder if that trope is carried throughout this production in a way yes The playwright does speak to us needing to present ourselves in a certain way, kind of not having the freedom to express all the different realms of our personalities when we're in public, right? There's certain things that we may enjoy as black people, but we can't let other people know, you know, Um, having to compartmentalize so that you're able to fit in, I guess. What the playwright has done is all of those things are uh, very, very true. Having to be the best at, having to work harder than a lot of other individuals. And what makes the play unique is she takes that premise and uses that premise in personal life to show that it is almost the same as in the corporate world or when you're in school and you want to be the best and do the best. It's the same within uh, these two women's personal lives. So that was a unique uh, piece of writing in the play. Now, David, you're the stage director for this play, and and I I can assume that you've you've done many, many productions over your course of, of being connected to this. Was this really different than something you've done in the past? Oh, it was. It was. Uh, and what very, were the challenges? The challenges were um, being um, being able to be true and sincere uh, to these words that um, I don't relate to. Um, you know, that I haven't related to as a man. Um, there are scenes in the show, particular scenes about dating and etc., that I actually had to internalize and do a lot of research, talk to a lot of different women to find out. And some people have asked, isn't it different if a guy directs a play about women as opposed to a woman directing a play about women? No, it's a story. Um, it's a story. Stand over here. Let this light come over there. Move over here. It's, you know, that's those basics. All the internalization and the characterizations. Um, very, very fortunate to have two actresses that do all of that work. All I have to do is say, stand over there, 
come over here, sit over there, that sort of thing. But in terms of the gist of the situation, the internalization of all the angst of uh, those two black women, those two actresses do all the work. I'm joined by David Hemphill and uh, Sunita Agent, part of Single Black Female. David is the stage director for that, and Sunita is one of the actresses, one of only two, actually. And uh, Sunita, you interact with the other character, is that right, throughout this play? Yes, we okay. interact with each other, we interact with the audience. How hard was it to memorize all of those lines because it's not like there's a ton of other people to help you carry the show, right? <laughs> um, it's it's a never-ending process, memorizing all the lines. I think every day I I've, I've remember a new line that I may have forgotten <laughs> the previous day. Right. What was one of the biggest takeaways that you might have had, Sunita, in participating in this project? Did you learn anything about yourself that you didn't already know going into it? Yeah, I kind of learned to step outside of like the boundaries that I've placed on myself as an actor, having to transition into so many different character types, really flex those muscles, so to speak, so that I had to like force myself to be a different person in like a matter of seconds. So that was something that was was a challenge. I did I did learn that I am capable. I'm capable of doing such a thing. Um so that was fun. Also, that I can actually memorize lines a little bit better than I thought. <laughs> so maybe you accomplished uh, some personal uh, goals that you didn't think that you necessarily could achieve. But I, I wonder what turning on a character, you know, flipping that switch in your head, what does that do to a person psychologically? <laughs> I'll find out when I'm 50. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've heard so many people tell me, um, because I do like different voices and stuff when I'm at work, I do... Um, like corporate training and stuff like that. So I hear them tell me, oh, you have like five to 10 different characters that just live in your head. And I'm always like, no, I don't. <laughs> and then I do this play and I'm like, oh my God, I really do. And they're all here today. <laughs> like this is, it's weird. Um, but it's also kind of fun. I think that creative side of my brain is a little bit bigger than the other side. I may be a little screwy at the end of it all. Who knows? <laughs> I know that the other actress internalized um, some of the scenes so deeply that she, um, you know, became very emotional about them. We had to stop and sit and talk through some things. Uh, I won't spoil it by telling you what they are. Just come and see the play, and um, you can see some moments that would give anybody pause. And the reason it affected her so is because she was able to relate that to her life, that she would that she had experienced mm -hmm. some of those things and she didn't know um, that it had aff had affected her that deeply because it was so long ago. It was like a uh, a remembrance that came back to, you know, kind of haunt her. So that's what the um, play has done. That wasn't a very fun moment. You know, you touch on something that to me is what would be seemingly ironic because this is supposed to be a comedic play, right? Mm -hmm. But you're exploring personal tragedy yes. in some ways. Yes. And you're still also trying to make the audience laugh about that. That's right. And there's um, throughout history, so to say, one of the ways that um, a lot of people, particularly African-American people, deal with pain um, and injustice is through humor. Um, you have to laugh to keep from crying. And so that is um, how they react in this play. It's written humorously, but it, there's also moments writing that'll make you, um, you know, reflect deeply on what's going on. So it's 
a strange kind of funny, dark comedy. That's the what mm-hmm. you would call it. Right. Sunita, was there a particular scene that you felt sort of the most proud about uh, or one that you wanted to highlight for our audience? To pick one scene is kind of difficult to do because much like my uh, co-star, there's a lot of different things that I can connect with. And I think in that connection, that's the highlight in itself, right? So any time where myself or uh, my cast Melvina are able to really delve into those characters, definitely something that you want to see. I think one of the funniest ones, though, is definitely the gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't spoil it for folks. We'll, no, just we let, won't. we'll just let that marinate sort of in their brains <laughs> yeah. as they listen to this. And that, this is a good time to remind people that there are adult themes yes. and adult language uh, yeah, good in point. this particular show. But it, it's not um, gratuitous in any way. Single Blank Female is the name of the production. The play runs through June 9th, and for more information, you can visit blacktheatertroop.org. And theater is spelled the British way with the R-E in there, so blacktheatertroop.org. Sunita and David, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Word. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Word. We're going on summer hiatus until early September when we will return with more discussion and features about the literary arts in the state and the region. I'm Tom Maxidon. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org. 